Why don't we pray as we begin? Dear Father, we pray that you would be with us as we come to your word now. Help us to understand what you're saying to us through this passage uh, and to know how to live it out in our lives. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, a couple of weeks ago, just before we came up on holidays, uh, I was helping my teenage son, Liam, uh, with his homework, and uh, he had to analyse a uh, US college graduation speech that went viral a few years ago. It was a speech by a man named David Foster Wallace, and the speech was called, This is Water. And uh, I must admit, I was initially excited to help Liam with his homework, uh, but it actually turned into great disappointment when I realised I'd misheard the title, because I thought the title was Be Like Water. And uh, if you know anything about Bruce Lee and martial arts, you'll know that very famously, Bruce Lee was once interviewed, and the secret to his kung fu was to be like water. Wah! So I was pretty excited, you know. I was hoping we could do some head kicking in the speech, you know, some karate chops, those sorts of things. But no, it wasn't about that at all. But the reason why this speech went viral is because it exposed some of the big hidden assumptions and, in fact, the arrogance in our Western education system. So very, very popular. And the, the main thing that this speech actually critiqued was that actually our Western education tends to lead us to think in a very me-centred way. That I am the centre of life and everything else happens relative to me. And so we all kind of tend to think of ourselves as kings of our little kingdom, wearing our little crowns on our heads with everyone and everything in our little circle being there to serve us. And so here's a quote from that speech where David Foster Wallace reflects on being tired and stuck in a traffic jam after work. And he says, My natural default setting is that situations like this are really all about me about my hungriness and my fatigue, my desire just to get home, and it's going to seem for all the world like everybody else is just in my way, and all this is how deeply and personally unfair on me this is. So he then points out that our education should really help us to realise that the world doesn't, in fact, revolve around me. And so what he does is he steps through each member of the traffic jam that he spotted and last time through sort of poured abuse on, but this time he actually tries to empathise with what they might be going through, how they might feel being stuck in the same traffic jam. And the point he makes is that each of us has our own story and together we're actually part of something bigger. All our stories combine and life works best, we're happier, more compassionate, more sacrificial when I take myself out of the centre and seek to fit my life around this bigger story of us all rather than trying to make the bigger story fit around me. Now, I think this is actually a little bit like what we see here at the end of the book of Ruth. So you would have noticed if you've been here for the series that Ruth is a beautiful love story between, in some ways, two very ordinary people. But as it ends, what happens is we zoom out and actually see this is much more. It is part of a bigger story, a bigger picture. In fact, what happens to Ruth and Naomi and Boaz 
is actually a key part of God's plan to save the entire world from its fundamental problem, sin. And the way that it pans out for Ruth and Boaz actually helps us to see that we are also part of God's plan to save the world. So let's get into Ruth chapter 4. And I've got three points from the passage. First, God's plan to save the world is characterised by costly committed love. That's verses 1 to 10. Second, God's plan to save the world is driven by the prayers of his people. That's verses 11 to 12. And finally, God's plan to save centres on a precious redeeming son. That's verses 13 to 22 before we finish with God's plan to save the world and you. So, first, verses 1 to 10, God's plan to save the world is characterised by costly, committed love. So last week, if you were here, we would have seen Boaz. He wants to marry Ruth and act as her and Naomi's redeemer. But in chapter 3, verse 12, there's a bit of a roadblock. That is, there is a closer relative who apparently has first dibs. Now, in chapter 4, we've come to the next morning at the town court where these matters are decided, and this relative has come along. Verse 3 comes along, and Boaz says to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it. And then he ends up saying, if you will redeem it, do so. But if you will not, tell me, so I will know. For no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. Now, we don't know all the details of the situation here, how this all worked legally. Um, It sounds a little bit like a law that you find back in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 25, where in a household, if a man dies and leaves a widow and children, uh, then the man's brother has a responsibility to marry his brother's widow so his family would continue to be cared for. But as I said, it's not quite the same here because Boaz wasn't Marlon, that's uh, Ruth's Um, uh, husband who died wasn't his brother and it's already said that both Boaz and Ruth are free to marry anyone they want we also find out here in chapter 4 Naomi actually has a field for sale which is part of the deal and we didn't know anything about that up until this point so it's a little bit odd but what I think makes best sense is this that Naomi's husband Elimelech who died like most Israelites actually had a plot of land in Israel which now she legally owned. But she wasn't able to live off it. And so maybe she and Ruth couldn't work the land by themselves, or Elimelech had sort of taken a mortgage on the land or something like that. But bottom line is, Naomi's in the position where she has to sell and lose her land. But they had a provision whereby a relative could pay off the creditors buy it in the family name, and then when the widow died, it would actually become theirs. And so in many ways, it was probably a pretty attractive deal for this um, uh, redeemer, this guardian redeemer. Uh, You might have to support an elderly relative for a few years, but the payout would be well worth it. I mean, I don't know what property prices are like in Bagara, but geez, in Sydney, if you get a sniff at a deal like this, you are on it like a rash. Right, And so the relative says in verse 4, I will redeem it, sign me up now. 
Uh, but then Boaz introduces an extra condition in verse 5. So then Boaz says, On the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. Now, I don't think we're meant to see this as the catch in the fine print. So, you know, heading up to the holidays, uh, Chrissy and I thought we would try and get some online holiday activities for the boys. And it says free stuff but you discover it's only free with the yearly $100 subscription. No thanks. So that's not what's going on here. right? Redeem this land, it'll be yours. You just have to have Ruth with you. No, Ruth, as we've seen, is a very attractive, very admired woman. But what all this does make clear is actually the true cost of this case of redemption where what will be involved is, number one, longer-term financial support, and then eventually actually having to hand the land back over to the heir and so losing it for yourself. And so faced with this, in verse 6, the relative suddenly finds a reason to back out. Now, I think there is meant to be a little bit of humour in it, but the bottom line is what this shows is that what Boaz took on in accepting Ruth's invitation to redeem was costly. So the other guy backed out when he understood the true extent of the costly obligation of redemption, which then sets Boaz in contrast as he willingly takes it up. He wants to love and care for Ruth and Naomi even though it will cause him significant loss materially and financially. And so what we're meant to see from this, in this passage, in this redemption, is a little hint of the costly commitment of Jesus for us. He gave his life for us at the cross. And isn't that a part of why we love him? Uh, The theologian Oz Guinness tells a story about uh, Stalin's attempt to stamp out Christianity in Russia in the last century. And he sent a a KGB agent to a church, and that agent saw an elderly lady kissing the feet of a statue of Jesus. And to test her... He went up to her and he says, Grandmother, are you also prepared to kiss the feet of the beloved secretary of our great communist party? And she answered, Why, of course. As long as you also crucify him first. (laughs) But that's it, isn't it? There is something about the costliness of Jesus' commitment to us that wins our love for him and makes you want to give him your time, your resources, your heart in response. And we see a little bit of a hint of that in this redemption of Boaz that he offers here. And so I wonder whether as you reflect on how Jesus is committed to you and the cost he paid to win you for himself, what does that mean for you in response Do you need to know more and soak your life more in how much Jesus paid to win you? Do you need to respond more in your love and commitment to him? 
I wonder if you want to write down something specific to you from this little picture of redemption that points to Jesus that we see tonight. How can you respond more to Jesus' costly redemption of you? All right, the second point we see from this passage is that God's plan to save is driven by the prayers of his people. So in verses 11 to 12, after Boaz uh, seals the deal and redeems Naomi and marries Ruth, uh, the elders respond with this prayer, verse 11. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. All right, so quite a few obscure references in this prayer. Not quite sure what's going on there. But um, it was probably a bit of a set prayer for a significant occasion like a redemption like this one. So it's quite formal. Um, It asks basically for productivity, that is offspring, and prominence, that is a powerful position. But it actually taps into some key cultural markers in ancient Israel. So Rachel and Leah were the two wives of Israel's founding father, Jacob. And uh, you can read in Genesis chapters 29 and 30 how they, together with their maidservants, produced the 12 sons who became the heads of the nation Israel, God's people. Okay, so productivity, that's the first part. And then prominence is the second part. And so in Genesis chapter 38, Perez is named one of the key leaders in the tribe of Judah which is actually Boaz's tribe. Now, I want to come back to these details in the next point, uh, but for now, I just want to draw attention to how in Ruth, God's plans for his people are driven and upheld by prayer. And so uh, actually one study in Ruth has shown how the character's short prayers throughout the book are actually the key to all the action that happens and that all those short prayers are answered by God, but importantly, not always how the characters expect. So, for example, in uh, chapter 1, verse 9, Naomi prays that Ruth will find another husband to care for her, but she thinks that she'll have a better chance in her homeland, so she tries to send her back to Moab to have that prayer answered. Now, as we see in chapter 4, God does answer that prayer for a husband to find rest and a home, but it's not in Moab, it's in Israel with her. Or in chapter 2, verse 4, Boaz's workers greet him with the friendly prayer, may the Lord bless you, uh, without having the faintest clue that God is going to bless Boaz in the very next verse as he sets eyes on Ruth for the first time. And so if you just read and scan again through the book of Ruth, you'll just see these little prayers scattered through. And as you think about them more, you realize how powerful those prayers are in driving the story forward. God works in response to the prayers of his people. And again, I think that simple truth is equally true for us. There are two things that we can say about prayer in the book of Ruth. Number one, prayer upholds and drives the world, and so it should uphold and drive our lives. And number two, God always answers his people's prayers 
but often not in the way we might expect. Um, I read a story about a small Christian church in India, uh, desperately in need of fuel for winter, but too poor to afford any. So at church, they prayed that God would provide fuel for them somehow. Anyway, after church, seemingly random, a herd of elephants stampeded through their village. Uh, Now, very dangerous, but the thing is, as they went, uh, they left massive piles of elephant dung. (laughs) And dried elephant dung just happens to be a great source of fuel. And so they went back to church, and apparently they sang the hymn, God works in mysterious ways, his wonders to perform. But that is true, isn't it? God answers the prayers of his people graciously, wonderfully, but often not in the manner they expect. But can I encourage you from this point to make your life then a life of prayer? It is incredibly important to be a prayer. Uh, Not because we or our prayers are powerful in and of themselves, but because our powerful God exercises his control of the world graciously through hearing and answering his people's prayers. And that's what we see here in Ruth. Now, you might feel sometimes that God does not answer your prayers. I think we all do sometimes. But the Bible, in the Bible, we see, like in Ruth, that is not true. You can help me with the stand. Thank you. I have been silently praying <laughs> that the stand would raise itself. It's amazing. Now, again, he may not answer exactly how or, or when we want. Um, this is amazing, isn't it? God provides. <laughs> so in his love, he may say yes to us. In his love, he may say no. In his love, he may say, wait. Or he may say, yes, but not exactly how you expect it. But the Bible makes it very clear God always hears and answers the prayers of his people. And uh, in my experience, I'm sure it's probably true for you as well, if you just stop and think and reflect, he is often so much more willing to say yes than we are often to ask, isn't he? So let prayer uphold and drive your life. Be a person of prayer. That's the second thing from this passage. And then the third thing that Ruth 4 shows us is that God's plan to save us from sin centres on a precious, redeeming son. So we've just had this prayer in verses 11 to 12 for productivity and prominence. And again, these characters probably had no idea how precisely or to what extent God would answer their prayers. But he does. Verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. When he made love to her, the Lord enabled her to conceive, and she gave birth to a son. Uh, Down to verse 16. Then Naomi took the child in her arms and cared for him. The women living there said, Naomi has a son, and they named him Obed. Uh, He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. This, then, is the family line of Perez. Perez was the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Now, uh, 
again, this may seem a little bit surprising, but this little genealogy in verses 18 to 22 is not just a little tack on at the end of the book. It is actually the climax and most important part of the book. In fact, this is what the whole book has been leading up to. Uh, Naomi's grandson, Obed, is a huge part of it, but you'll actually see the book leads up to Obed's own grandson, and that is David. And uh, you may know that David is the great covenant king in the Old Testament of Israel. And in fact, in the next books of the Bible, 1 and 2 Samuel, God makes David and the line of kings who will come from him a little bit like the conduit of his ultimate plan for the world, and that is to save it from sin. But what the book of Ruth shows us is just how appropriate it is for David to be God's chosen king like this. You see, David's very existence is literally due to a precious redeeming son in Obed. And so precious redeeming sons are in David's very family line and through the rest of the Bible what we see is that family line continues down into the New Testament to the ultimate precious redeeming son, God's own son, Jesus, David's descendant, who doesn't just redeem us from our griefs and struggles in this world, but redeems us from what lies behind them all, and that is our sin and rejection of God. Let me try and illustrate how that works. Um, This is my thumbnail, and you'll see it's beautiful, nice and healthy and pink, Uh, but it wasn't always. And so I actually got an infected nail several years ago uh, that turned it very mongy and very painful. It grew up really thick and uh, pretty yellow and ugly. It's pretty bad. Um, And I tried everything that I could think of. I cut it back. I filed it down, uh, which gave me a bit of relief, but then it grew back funny again. Um, I even went to the chemist and tried to get some of the over-counter stuff that you get, painted it on, and that helped a little bit again, but actually not much. Uh, It was only when I went to the doctor and was prescribed a medicine by the doctor, not to deal just with the symptoms, but the underlying disease, that my nail started to really improve and got back to full health. So the symptom relief, that was good, had its place, but what I truly needed was to deal with what was causing the symptoms. And that's a little bit like Ruth ending with this genealogy that leads to David. Because what it shows us is that while God is wonderfully caring about our griefs and sorrows in life, that is, the symptoms, his ultimate goal is to deal with the disease that causes them all, and that is sin, through the death and resurrection of his precious, redeeming son, Jesus. You see how that works? And so I think this is a great encouragement and a great challenge for you here at Bagara Prezi. Um, We love coming up here, and even over this last week, we have felt so welcomed and provided for by so many of you. The hospitality is amazing, and it is such a great characteristic of your church. Can I encourage you? Please keep it up. Uh, But even as you do, uh, remember to be not only a community that cares, but a community that cares 
because you want people to know Jesus. He alone can fix the true underlying disease behind all the symptoms of our fallen world that we experience. He alone can save us from sin and death. So can I encourage and challenge you, like the stories of the real people we met in Ruth, make the story of Bagara Prezi lead people in an unmistakable line through your care that leads straight to Jesus. All right, let me uh, wrap up with two final reflections from Ruth. Um, I think if you wanted a summary of Ruth's message, it would be something like this, uh, that God makes our common, complicated lives contribute to the coming of his saving kingdom. God makes our common and complicated lives contribute to the coming of his saving kingdom. Uh, We see this through all the twists and turns of what happens to Naomi, what happens to Ruth, what happens to um, uh, Boaz. They all come together to feed into that coming of his saving kingdom. And so I think that has two huge implications for us. Uh, First, Ruth shows us the mind-blowing truth that our God, the all-powerful ruler of the universe, deeply, graciously, compassionately loves you. Ruth is such a real book. It is so true to life. And there may or there will be times where we will say, call me Mara, because my life is so bitter. Ruth shows us that's part of life in a fallen, sinful world. But Ruth also shows us above and beyond that God doesn't just sit distant and aloof to us. He says, I will not leave you running on empty. You can trust me. I will fill you with joy and blessing again. And Ruth and the rest of the Bible show us he is good to his word, even unto death, in the Lord Jesus giving his life for us. So God deeply, graciously, compassionately loves you. How wonderful is that? But second, it also shows us, like uh, we saw in our introduction, that the story of Naomi and Ruth and Boaz, with all the tears and emptiness, with all the joys and fullness, is much more than just the experience and story of their lives. And again, I guess it is a bit like that David Foster Wallace speech, but the book of Ruth shows that the lives of its characters are actually best lived in service of something bigger than themselves. But unlike David Foster Wallace, Ruth also shows us that that something bigger isn't just all of our stories. There is one ultimate story, and that is God's story of his plan to save the world from sin through his son, Jesus, that we need to see our lives as ultimately revolving around and lived in service of. Uh, We recently lost, for many people, a beloved queen, and um, a previous beloved queen, Queen Victoria, uh, was said to have once heard a sermon on Jesus' second coming, 
and was so moved, she wept. And her chaplain who preached the sermon asked why she was crying. And she said, oh, how I wish that the Lord would come in my lifetime. When the chaplain asked her why she wanted that so much, she said, because I should so love to lay my crown at his feet. Isn't that beautiful? Well, that is not just something for Queen Victoria. That is something for us all, isn't it? And it's not just something for us when he returns. It's something we should do now and every day of our lives. How we should love to take that metaphorical crown of our lives off our own head and lay it at Jesus' feet in service of his story. So let me pray and ask God to use each of our lives like that for his glory. Dear Father, we give you thanks for the way that from even before we were born, you have loved each one of us more than we can ever know. And we thank you that like we have seen in Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, that as we reflect on our own lives, that we can see through the twists and turns and the tears and the trouble, the griefs and the joys, that you have loved us and served us constantly. We also pray that we would not make the mistake, therefore, of seeing ourselves as the centre of everything, but that you, who stand at the centre of all things, have humbly served and loved us. So we pray that you would give us the humility and the courage and the wisdom to take ourselves out of the centre of our lives, to lay our crowns gladly at your feet, and to live our lives in service of your bigger story. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.